Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends, and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Um... KJ. Matt. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these four rapid-fire trivia questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. The first question is worth one point, and each question after that is worth one more point. Then we'll follow it up with a theme discussion, this week being, what makes a fantasy creature a fantasy creature? Tom, tell us about today's movie. Big movies in Japan in 1997 include Perfect Blue, Welcome Back, Mr. McDonald, Rebirth of Mothra 2, so I, I suppose he's been rebirthed again and today's movie princess mononoke kj will be our questionnaire today kj what is princess mononoke all about in princess mononoke we follow ashitaka who is immediately cursed and exiled while saving his town from a demon boar he finds the source of the curse is iron from iron town well named because they make iron the movie then sets up strange matchups of different battles between different groups, including riflemen, corrupt samurai, ferocious boars, the slow-talking monkeys, and of course, Princess Mononoke herself and the wolves by which she was raised. In the end, I think we're supposed to learn something about the environment, um, but it was a little confusing because I think they're still making iron. I it was it was, but in I, harmony now. In harmony in now. Harmony. But they didn't show that. In other words, I don't know. Hopefully that did work out for everybody in the movie. It's time for question one. Who leads Ashitaka through the forest to Irontown? Locked in. Locked in. Okay, locked in. All right, Tom, what do you have? I had Jigo? Higo? The monk? Nick? No, it was the creepy but cool looking forest spirits that just like lived in the trees and matt what do you have i was gonna say a cool ah his uh his red uh red elk red elk, red elk. yeah mm. it is indeed the little white forest creatures oh, called those were so cool yeah they, they were, were they were awesome they, yeah they were like and they would rattlers. fade in and out mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. and their heads like would those. spin and still have different expressions <laughs> like <laughs> And they just seem so curious about everything. Yeah, and they were awesome. I, I really enjoyed them in this film. I don't know why, probably more than I should. It just was a really cool feature. And there was an endless supply of them too, or they were all invisible. Yeah, yeah Studio Ghibli always has a little cool feature, I think. They, they tend to have um, exceptional detail work. It's time for question two. Why did the giant boar attack Iron Town, and just to be clear, Iron Town, not Ashitakaville, but Iron Town. Locked in. Wait, is it the same boar, the demon boar? There's two giant boars in this film. Yes, That's the why. first demon boar. <laughs> oh, why did the first? Why did the first demon boar attack Iron Town? Yes. Okay. Locked in. Also locked in. Locked in. Nick, what do you have? They were destroying the forest. Tom? Yeah, they were destroying the forest. They were, they were leveling it to get iron. 
that had uh, iron elsewhere had been had been taken away. Matt? Yeah, they were causing ruckus in the in the forest there. Great points for everybody. Yes, they had mined all the iron that was literally in town, and to get to the iron, they had to cut through the forest, <laughs> upset all the boars, <laughs> and the monkeys later. Yeah. The, the creepy monkeys. They were creepy. <laughs> they were very creepy. Those are the monkeys you want to run into. I thought they were going to try to say they were uh, turned into demons because there was one scene where their eyes were all red, but then in a later part of the film, their eyes were not red. So I guess they just have red eyes at night. Nature isn't sweet in this. Mm-hmm. Even if we want nature to survive, it's still a vicious thing. It's time for question three. What do the apes want from the wolves and Princess Mononoke? Oh, locked in. Locked in. So there's a scene where all the apes are kind of surrounding the wolves, Mononoke, and they are demanding something from the wolves and Mononoke. Locked in. Tom, what do you have? They want to eat Prince Ashitaka. (laughs) Nick? I also have eat. Prince Ashitaka. And Matt? Eat Prince Meat. (laughs) (laughs) And she's even like the princess, even like, you know, that's not going to give you more strength. (laughs) Like, why are you doing that? (laughs) Yeah, they're a little stupid. (laughs) (laughs) It's a creepy scene. That's when they had the really red eyes that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, they lose those later, but I think it might be a day night thing. It might yeah. be, yeah. I, I, it just seems like I, I again, there's a just a, a world of viciousness that seems to be alive here. Going into the last question, Nick is in the lead with six points. Matt and Tom not far behind with five. It's anybody's game, and hopefully Uh-oh. somebody will take it because there's no bonus questions prepared. Uh oh, it's time for question four. Princess Mononoke, otherwise known as Sam, is doing what? When Ashitaka first sees her. Locked in. Locked in. Okay, I'm thinking first. First. Okay, I'm going to lock in. Matt, what do you have? She was bouncing around the rooftops of Irontown getting ready to uh, assassinate the, the head lady there. Tom? She's sucking out the blood to, to oh. heal the wound. <laughs> Of her mother wolf, That's presumably it. to I, I would imagine to suck out the the shot, and then she spits out the blood. Nick, what do you have? Yes, she was at the riverside with the wolves, trying to heal the wound of the big wolf. <laughs> the god. god feature, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, I couldn't remember the exact title, and I don't want to get this episode wrong because I can't remember the god title. <laughs> All right, points to Tom and Nick, which means. Nick wins the episode on Morrow Blood. Wow. Flawless yeah, Morrow. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Victory. Wow. Thank, you. Thank you. Oh, and, and... You know who voiced that in the American version? That was Scully. Gillian mm-hmm. Anderson. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Matt, I had to think deep because I almost went there on first, first thoughts. Yes. I was what? like, oh, oh, wait, no. I think there was an earlier scene. <laughs> well, I, I I got excited because Tom's made it known on our podcast that he does not have taste for Star Wars. And uh, <laughs> I was just jumping at the opportunity to, you know, bring Star Wars, you know, to this episode. And it yeah. reminded me of that. There's that episode in The Mandalorian where Ahsoka comes to that village and is 
kind of doing some Princess Mononoke stuff mm-hmm. prior to a, a similar duel. And I was just like, yes. That's yes, you're chance. right. You're That's right. right. You're you're reviving our old rivalry. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, audience should not we do we do not care for one another. <laughs> <laughs> for more information, check out three films pods, the two towers episode. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats to Nick, our winner. We'll be diving into the topic of the week. What makes a fantasy creature a fantasy creature? Right after this break. Join another Talking Studios production, Limited Lexicon, where we play through text-based adventure games. Text-based adventure games were computer games from before computers had graphics. The game uses text to describe a scene, and the player types back how they want to interact with the game. I'll read the text from the computer, and my co-host will feed me commands. This season, we're playing through The Hobbit from 1982 on the ZX Spectrum. Here's a quick sample. I thought uh, a lot about our first command, and I think it should be no print because we don't want to print things as we're going along. I think by default, it's not going to print. And even <laughs> if I did print, where is it going to print to? 1982? I, I would imagine if we go west, we're going to be south of the troll, right? Just south of the troll land. Yeah, let's try it. You go west. The troll's clearing. The visible. Oh, we died. <laughs> 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 all right the troll the troll saw us and killed us so i think we have to see the answer to the riddle then the answer is dark say dark i think talk to what Golem. Gollum. say Gollum. dark you talk to Gollum. thorin says hurry up and we died and we died so we went northeast last time so let's go southwest you go southwest. Visible exits are north, northwest. You see the valuable golden ring. Oh, we're wow. ending it here. That's wait, wait. perfect. Oh, That's wow. perfect. Limited lexicon coming to your podcatcher and YouTube in late 2022 by Talking Studios. And we're back. So, what does make a fantasy creature a fantasy creature? KJ, any initial thoughts? Well. So one of the things that I remembered about Princess Mononoke before rewatching it was there are tons of different fantasy creatures in Princess Mononoke. And I'm going to say they're, they're fantasy creatures. We're in the middle of our fantasy block. Last week we did Conan, and we were talking a little bit about some of the snakes, um, <laughs> the buzzards, the poor camel. Uh, in Princess Mononoke, you had tons of different uh, fantastical creatures that don't exist in our known world. And then next week, we're doing Pan's Labyrinth. And if you want to talk about other fantasy creatures, there is going to be tons there. But what makes a fantasy creature a fantasy creature? Does it have to be more than just a two-tailed wolf? Does it, like, is a Wookiee a fantasy creature? What what makes a good fantasy creature? Why do we connect with some, but we don't connect at all with, with others, right? Jim Henson's incredible at making fantasy creatures that we instantly connect with. But something like... Um, should have had an example uh, queued up, but a, a lesser insert example. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we like Jar Jar Binks? But we love Chewbacca. What's What's the difference? Why? What makes a a fantasy creature a fantasy creature? I'm gonna answer that question soon, but you just made me realize this movie could have benefited from more or any 
snake arrows. I think that could have <laughs> added another element, especially since the heavy animal theme. But I'll, I'll save that for the sequel. <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm using in my observation here, Vladimir Propp's work, who was a, a Russian theorist back in the 1920s, who saw sort of folklore, and if we think of fantasy as something that comes out of folklore, right, or is, is somewhat associated with folklore, uh, that one principal element of folklore is animal stories, in which animals start to adopt these, these human characteristics, right? And it seems as if what we get with fantasy is um, something recognizably realistic. Usually it's a woodland scene. I would say the settings in fantasy borrow more from human experience more so than science fiction right you know you could you could recognize something in fantasy but what connects it from realism to imagination ends up being the the creatures in fantasy things we've never seen before the dragon which has characteristics of a serpent or a reptile which we're familiar with but is also more advanced than this and may depending on the, the dragon you're looking at, actually have a, a sort of human intelligence. And so it seems to be like a fantasy creature bridges that gap between the, the purely realistic and the, um, the purely fantastical, which is uh, you know so abstracted probably doesn't connect. I think you're quite right, Tom. You need to be able to recognize it right off the bat, right? It can't be something alien to be honest, right? It, it needs to be rooted in things we are already familiar with. I think it's mm -hmm. an important piece of what makes a fantasy creature a fantasy creature. Right, yeah, and it speaks to something kind of uh, mythological. A dragon borrows the characteristics of a snake because the snake is the original instigator of evil in the world, if we think of the Garden of Good and Evil, or, you know, the Garden of Eden, rather. Uh, that, therefore, the, the dragon becomes this kind of... Um, main villain in in a kind of fantasy world right if we isolate a dragon it's it's either a villain or if we want to invert the story a la Dragonheart or something like that it becomes a hero <laughs> right but that that's an inversion that's not a natural mm -hmm. extension and so i think that the fantasy creature because the settings in fantasy tend to be familiar the fantasy creature is that which extends the world into the world of the imagination Another element that I think really was highlighted in this film specifically was anthropomorphism. So human characteristics on gods, animals, different objects. I think that's a big part of it because it goes back to what you guys were just saying about relatable, but still something is off, different, fantastical. It also, to Tom's point, has to do with like the world that it's in. Like you have fantastical creatures that may look exactly like something we're familiar with, like a lion, like Aslan is just a talking lion um, or shadow facts where you don't, there's nothing even discernibly different about shadow facts, the horse, but you're told that he's like a God in this land and uh, has, you know, all these, I guess, supernatural powers that horses that you don't actually see it that I recall. Tom can correct me, but um, you're just told that like Shadowfax is a cool horse that can do these things. And, it, you know, um, but in Aslan, like lions can't talk, but like, then you have like planet of the apes where in like the, those, that newer trilogy, these apes have learned to talk through a science fiction, uh, path 
So it's not as fantastical because there's actually like some scientific backing to why they're actually um, able to do so. Uh, but I also, I gravitate more towards uh, what's already been mentioned that these creatures have to have some type of supernatural element about them uh, that, that, uh, that we can kind of connect from the familiar, like, um, like Griffin's, with like the head of a bird and the body of a horse and, and wings, like something you can describe of your, your own world to, to describe this creature um, that borrow the characteristics of things that you're familiar with. Yeah. And I think studio Ghibli is a master at, at doing this right in, in Mononoke, right. The wolves are really cool. The one I think has two tails, but even so, I guess they're, they're bigger, the big one. right? Yeah. The biggest Moro, the, the mom, um, we, we mentioned the monkeys a few times. They they don't seem just like regular monkeys. They seem fantastical, even though there's nothing visual apart from their red eyes um, that might be. But then the the forest god in his two forms is also a really cool... Like, it's it's something you want to dream about, is, is how I would describe it. Not if you cut his head off. Not if you cut his head off, yeah. <laughs> don't cut That's his head off. Nightmares. <laughs> Yeah, and it becomes this idea of what a, a folklore sort of gives us, which is the hero is isolated from his clan and has to go out into the world and discover the heart of something, right? Some sort of truth about something in order to repair the damage that has been done, whatever that damage is. And in this film, the heart of something that, that that we're referencing here is the the spirit of the forest right that, that has been violated and the spirit of the forest it's it's a fantasy creature and also we use the term god which they seem to use the term god in the way maybe we talk about greek myth as having god right there's a god that embodies a sort of character of the natural world would you say in this context they're really more like demigods because they aren't immortal. They have powers, they have resistances. In, in in Greek, the term for this would be daemon. It's where we get our term demon from. But a daemon is something between God and, and man. Mm. It doesn't necessarily have immortality, but it has supernatural character. And that seems to be where they're going for here. I think the 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 equivalence to Greek gods or, or Roman gods is that the representative, you know, this thing stands in for the woods, just as Mars stands in for war or, or something like that. I may be completely off here, but I think it might be more similar to, you know, what we learned about Native Americans. Because mm -hmm. I know in, in Shintoism, you can have things imbue other things. And and a lot of the gods in Shintoism, there's the god of, of rice, which is also kind of the god of wine. He's kind of a trickster. So I I see where you're, where you're going with the Greek, but I think it might be more... Uh, might, a Native American spiritualism might be a more familiar way to, to represent that. Sure, I couldn't, I couldn't speak to that. Um, Amer Native American spiritualism. I think of like... Um, we have god of the grains, right? Um, Demeter, uh, god of wine and Bacchus as well. But... You know, regardless, I, I think to Nick's point, there is a sort of mortality to them. They die, they can be cut off, which makes them far more precious than something that's immortal. And yet the spirit of the woods is something recognizable. It's a deer, but it's a deer with a human face that has an impossible amount of antlers, right? It, it, it's something 
realistic and then suddenly not. When we get closer to it, it's suddenly not. And that bridges us from realism to fantasy. And it seems like the, the fantasy creature, at least in this movie, and I think that's true in, in most fantasy movies, is what takes us out of the real into the fantasy. Think of the Ents in Lord of the Rings, right? Which are certainly mm -hmm. recognizable as something we see every day in, in trees, unless you live in New York City in which you see no trees. But, you know, that takes us from the real into the imaginative. Going to something that Matt mentioned when we're talking about fantasy settings, the one area that this film doesn't cover with a fantasy setting is everything around them. So the world seems very livable, like our world, maybe in ancient times, but there's nothing super fantastical about the environment, maybe what inhabits the environment, but not the environment itself. They are mining for iron. They are starting to go up the chain of understanding what uh, gunpowder is with rudimentary guns and cannons. So None of that seemed crazy. They're not shooting fireballs. They're, it seems very grounded into what you know human history could have evolved through. So that was what was really... Modernity? You know, yes. Yes, we love that topic <laughs> of modernity. But needless to say, that's why I think the question of the week really is a perfect one for this film because the characters, the creatures... That's what made this world out of our world. It's a hard movie to remember, yeah, right? It is. Yeah, it has. Yeah, I, I think there is a sort of, um, yeah, there's a sort of dreamlike quality to it that makes cause and effect a little muddy. You're right, like almost like a lucid state, mm -hmm. and it's fast paced. Like I mentioned in my first impressions last week, like it's go go go. And it's a bit like Conan, where it kind of feels like there's smaller stories vaguely stitched together. Like the transition between short stories aren't always don't always make sense. I, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, just to add add to what's been said, I think uh, to your point, Tom, that you 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 see the spirit in the forest, and it's familiar. And I mean, it's you can imagine folklore around seeing you know some type of you know five pronged or 12 pronged antler deers or, you know, wandering the forest. So it's a mythological, almost like a Bigfoot type thing. Like people see this thing every once in a while. Um, and so there's something relatable to it um, that, you know, we have, we have our like urban legends or uh, what's, what's the word for like Nessie. Like we have these creatures that, uh, that in our world, we talk about like having seen or sightings, all that. Uh, but what really makes it, you know, bridges us into fantasy is when you get up close to it and you realize this is unlike anything I've seen before. This is different. This is the, yeah, like a, this is not the face of a, of an elk or a deer. This is a human face it looks unlike any creature I've ever seen. Um, and so that, that's where it takes you. And it's similar to, I mean, uh, KJ mentioned Pan's Labyrinth. A lot of those Guillermo del Toro creatures are, are similar in that way where they're, they're familiar in one way and then you get up close and there's the little details that are like oh wait this is this is a dream this is completely different and matt i'm so glad you brought up planet of the apes i think that is such a great example the um charlton heston apes they are striking there's something when you look at them that at least for me makes me want to continue to watch those movies and 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 like live not with the apes but be in that world whereas the james franco planet of the apes the CG is fantastic. It's incredible. And, you know, Andy Serkin's great. But they, they kind of just look like 
apes that are on our planet, and they're not necessarily fantasy creatures. Where I would say that the 1968 Planet of the Apes, they are fantasy mm-hmm. creatures. So I think that's a great way to distinguish uh, between the two. The, the the James Franco one, they're explained. We get a scientific explanation of mm-hmm. where they came from and how they got here. Blah blah blah. I mean, uh, if what I think of as as fantasy is evolving from folklore, and the difference here actually be, being setting, right? Folklore imagines our world, but maybe at an earlier time or at a distance from civilization. Fantasy imagines an alternative world, but in either case, there isn't there isn't a, a clear explanation of where these things come from, right? Um, well, I think with, with James Frank and with science fiction, very often there is an explanation, right? We get the, 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 the history of man's exploratory nature, which creates, if, you're, if, it's, if we're talking about like um, maybe Isaac Asimov creates something good, or if we're talking much more pessimistically, like something in Dune or something like that creates sort of uh, problems or interacts with problems. Audience, you're experiencing Talking Pictures Trivia, Folklore and Legend right now, as I would like to congratulate Nick for taking this down flawless. Whoa. This has got to be his first time, episode 139, Flawless Victory. Well done, Nick. I'll take it. Flawless victory. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks again for joining us, Matt. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It was it was great uh, to talk Princess Mononoke with you guys. Um, KJ and Tom have been on on uh, our podcast, which is uh, three films in a podcast. Very similar, uh, very similar goal. I think we're essentially challenging each other to watch movies that we haven't seen, and we encourage the community that that uh, that listens in to do the same to listen to watch the movies along with us, but. Um, we just find ourselves watching, you know, the same stuff over and over again, the stuff that we like, uh, but we want to branch out and watch and be exposed to as much as we as we can. And KJ and Tom have joined us on before. Uh, it's great to meet Nick and join you guys finally uh, and, and talk this movie. I've, but yeah, you can find us anywhere. Um, you listen to podcasts. Uh, we we highly recommend the YouTube or Spotify video of three films in a podcast uh, just because of the the work that Ben puts into that. It, it's a it's a good show. It's a lot of fun. Um, if you like this show, you'll like their show as well. It you know come come hang out with three films in a podcast. Yeah, join the movie club. Yeah, and, and you guys mm-hmm. have great guests as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. You can rate and review this show anywhere podcasts are available. For those viewing in YouTube land, if you haven't already, please like this video. Subscribe to the Talking Studios channel for all our exciting content and follow us on Twitter at Talking Studios. Check out other shows by Talking Studios, including Keep Making Movies, where we explore micro-budget films, Limited Lexicon, where we play through text-based adventure games, and Get the Point, where we slowly reveal a movie poster and try to guess which movie poster it is. Got a question for us? Call the Talking Studios hotline at 201-467-8679 and leave a message. It may be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Talking Pictures Trivia wherever fine podcasts are found. Join us next time when we discuss a fantasy movie from the 2000s, Pan's Labyrinth from 2006. 
Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Next week, we'll be discussing Pan's Labyrinth from 2006. Tom, how was your watch? I saw this movie when it first came out in 2006, and I really liked it a lot. This is my first rewatch since then, and I've seen a lot of Del Toro's other films, more recently The Shape of Water, which is a movie I didn't like very much. Upon rewatching it, I found it um, both not as exciting, but maybe more interesting. I think the movie is doing really cool things with the kind of the folk tale tradition um, in ways that I didn't appreciate before. However, I'd say like the most unrealistic parts of it tend to be the like the, the scenes with the phalange and, and things like that, which become uh, sort of almost stereotypical. However, within a sort of fairy tale conception, it works still, and I still appreciated it. So I will say my first watch was, uh, or this is my second watch, my second watch was, was good. I think it was on par with my first. Ragnar, how about you? I would say this watch was probably my fifth time watching this film. Um, like yourself, I've seen it since it, since it's been out, and I have been in love with it ever since. I think this is Guillermo del Toro's kind of like uh, Hispanic masterpiece because he was doing kind of American films and Mexican films at the same time, and I feel like this is the pinnacle of his kind of Spanish-speaking films. And, and the peak of his career. And I think it's a unique film and I've never seen anything else like it, really. I love it. Hey, KJ, what about you? Yeah, you know, there was a lot of hype around this movie when it first came out. A lot of hype. People were like, Pan's Labyrinth, you gotta see Pan's Labyrinth. It's completely, like, it looks cool, right? Um, so the first time I watched it, I downloaded it. I probably watched it in a hotel room or something on a laptop. I, this was before I watched Spirit of the Beehive, guys, so I was unaware of Franco. Pardon my uh, Now you're an expert. Now, I, now I've heard of Franco. Um, so I wasn't sure if the regime was completely fictional or if that was, you know, part of the setting or that was just needed to create the tension. Um, but then we watched Spirit of the Beehive. So on this watch, I knew the regime was real. So that helped. Um, I think the visuals are, you know, good. But um, yeah, audience, enjoy it. I don't know. How about you, Nick? What'd you think? Well, after KG's glowing review here, I don't know how to follow that one up. I had this on my list for a long time and never got around to see it until right now. I know I wanted to see it when it came out. It just never got on my list. I never watched it. And I do think it's very interesting how everything is portrayed, the aesthetic, one thing I'm going to say, which may throw everyone off, I thought there would be more fantasy elements. And I know that sounds weird to say, but the few that I saw from the trailer uh, were pretty much the fantasy elements when it comes to that weird creature type and look. So I thought there was going to be more there. That's not a diss on the film. It just, I thought it was going to spend more time in the fantasy than in the real life. And I I think it actually spent more time in, in the real world struggles than in the fantasy. But we'll talk more about that next week. Wow. Talking Studios. Oh, Tom, one scene that I thought you were going to really like is when they're working the bellows. So you say they're working the bellows. And Ashitaka shows up and he's like, hey, I'd like to try it. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's a Tom scene right there. <laughs> yeah. That's something I would do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I did want to ask, from our first impressions last week, I asked, why is this called Princess Mononoke? And it seemed like Tom like really wanted to field this one. So, I mean, anyone can do it, but why is it called that? Not Prince Ashitaka or the god of the forest walker or whatever. Be because, see, about a unity between the woods and, and the world of humans. The leader of the world of humans is actually establishing a better community for the people. She establishes a better community for the outcasts, be they prostitutes or lepers. And what she fails to do is find an accord with the natural world. Princess Mononuke, which I believe means supernatural in Japanese. Am I correct about that, KJ? I, I'm not sure. I've heard a few different things, but either supernatural or like wild mayhem, crazy, like. Okay. Yeah. But regardless, she is a human who has been accepted into the natural world. So she has her foot in She's the a wolf. So. She's a wolf, but she also is a person, right? She was thrown as a child at that wolf. Good parent. So she's legitimate. <laughs> yeah, good parent, but she's legitimately a human being who has no love for human beings, which ironically makes her the uh, a sort of good arbiter between the world of iron and the world of boar flesh, right? Or, or wolf flesh, however you want to say it. And she ends up becoming despite her sort of myopic way of addressing the conflict she despite herself embodies a sort of possibility that you can live in the natural world while being human right that's why i would guess she is the title or the you know the titular character of this this is all isolated within this universe right there's no um manga or anything else this is just this is part of the the Mothra. Yeah. Universe. <laughs> that, oh God, I love that! Like it's it's the Mothra rebirth part two. Well, I believe at the end of one, she goes back to being a um, larva. What a moth started? Yeah, yeah a, uh, larva? a slug. What yeah, are, yeah, why, yeah probably. It's either a larva, you know. Oh, a caterpillar. Into... She goes back to being a caterpillar. So, <laughs> but she uh, if she's been rebirthed, that means she's been birth before oh the metamorphosis is and it's part insane. two yeah. <laughs> so she she was already rebirthed and then she was rebirthed again that's, that's what i found that's so funny about sounds like a fantastical creature to me yeah <laughs> well i mean it's not part of a separate world right so it sounds kind of sci-fi to me maybe mm -hmm. they don't explain the rebirth tom they don't explain it <laughs> yeah. yeah she just comes out actually of it. you're right though it but probably that's anyway, that's... is because of uh exposure to nuclear waste or something toxic waste yeah yeah that's yeah, the whole point yeah, of yeah, godzilla yeah, yeah. right it's it's 